Hey friends, welcome to the Highland Church Podcast. We believe that you were made for God's mission. We encourage you to check out our website, highlandcc.org, where you can learn more about what you are called to in Christ Jesus. Let's hear a message today that we hope will challenge, encourage you, and ultimately help you to grow and identify your purpose in the plan of God. We're going to be in Mark 11, but before we go there, I want to show you something. This is from Mark 1. I don't have a slide for this. I just want you to remember it. We started this series out of the book of Mark, the Good News series, about a year ago. And this is how Mark starts his good news. And so I just want to point out how fundamental what we're going to talk about today is. It's one of the the most fundamental dimensions of our faith. And it it is so basic, so important, that it shows up in the first sentence of Mark's good news. This is what he says. The beginning of the good news about Jesus Christ, God's Son, happened just as it was written about. Happened just as it was written about. Okay. The other night, Lindsay looks at me and... um, We're watching our boys play, which is, you know, fun. It's just a delightful moment. But I can tell there's something on her mind. She's sitting there thinking, and she looks over at me, and she says, Eric, does it feel like the world's falling apart? So to to frame that question, I think this happened the day after the bombing at the airport in Afghanistan. So that was shortly after the earthquake in Haiti, which, you know, further devastated a country that already suffers so much. That happened right about the time we were waiting on Hurricane Ida to make landfall, and it ravaged the coast and then flooded the Northeast. Um, It happened as Middle Tennessee was flooding as well in Waverly. I'm so thankful for the gifts you all gave to help there. But of course, also that question was framed by a year and a half of this pandemic, which just seems like it's never going to end sometimes. And then... It was also framed a bit by the reflection that Lindsay and I have been doing on 9-11, what happened 20 years ago. And she looks at me and she says, Eric, does it feel like the world's falling apart? Yeah, it kind of does feel like that. And so to have hope in a world like that would be an audacious thing, wouldn't it? To have hope in a world where hopelessness is normalized, is expected. To have that kind of hope would be almost a defiant thing. There would be a kind of audacity in that kind of hope. So I'm working on this sermon and that occurs to me, the audacity of hope. And I think that is a good sermon title. I was like, that is so original. Uh, The church is going to love me. I'm probably going to get a book deal out of this. Well, turns out President Barack Obama got the book deal. Um, That's the name of his book, The Audacity of Hope. So there's nothing new under the sun. I'm probably going to get a cease and desist letter from the president's publishers. All right. I'm talking about a different book, or sorry, a different kind of hope. Paul talks about in Romans the hope that does not disappoint us. And so what I want to do is I want to take you into a scene today in Mark 11 that is a scene that is filled with hope. But but what I want to show you is that it's a pretty audacious kind of hope, a pretty audacious hope. This is it. 
When Jesus and his followers approached Jerusalem, they came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives. And Jesus gave two disciples a task, saying to them, go into the village over there, and as soon as you enter it, you'll find tied up there a colt that no one has ridden. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, its master needs it, and he'll send it back right away. They went and they found a colt tied to a gate outside the street. They untied it, and some people standing around them said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them just what Jesus had said, and they left him alone. And they brought the colt to Jesus, and they threw their clothes upon it. And he sat on it. And many people spread out their clothes on the road, while others spread branches cut from the fields. And those in front of him and those following were shouting, Hosanna! Blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessings on the coming kingdom of our ancestor David. Hosanna in the highest. Jesus entered Jerusalem, and he went into the temple. And after he looked around at everything in the temple, because it was already late in the evening, he returned to Bethany with the twelve. This is a scene that is filled with hope. But, but again, it's a pretty audacious kind of hope here. And let me make sense of that for you. What we know about this story from the rest of the story is that this entry into Jerusalem is taking place during Passover, which is a yearly celebration when everyone from all Israel would come to Jerusalem and they would celebrate the freedom of God. They would celebrate when God freed them from Egyptian slavery. So it was this time when they were just filled with hope. But it's a little ironic at this moment, this kind of celebration, because they are not free right now. They're occupied by Rome. And so to have hope in that kind of setting strikes us as pretty odd. To celebrate the freedom of God when you're not free is a strange thing. In fact, the strangeness or the oddity of that is reflected in the difference between the parade of Jesus and the parade that would have started Passover because it started every Passover. Every Passover on the west side of Jerusalem, Pilate, who was the Roman official charged with oversight of these Jews, Every Passover, he would come to town. And he would march into Jerusalem on the west side of town in a big parade. He would march in on a war horse, and he would be surrounded by his infantry and cavalry. And there would be banners declaring the might of Rome. He would march into Jerusalem at the beginning of every Passover for one reason, crowd control. Because if you are an occupying government, the last thing you want is a bunch of people, a bunch of your subjects to get together and to talk about the hope that comes from freedom. And so he marched into town on this really big parade that was designed to send one message. You are not free. There's no reason for hope. And so you compare that parade to the parade of Jesus. And it's a pretty paltry affair by comparison. He doesn't have a war horse, he has a donkey or a colt. Uh, There's no infantry, there's no cavalry. What we probably have are some Galilean fishermen, some peasants, and some women. There's no banners. People are just throwing their jackets on the road. They're going and they're grabbing branches and leaves, and and they're throwing them on the road. So, you know, this this is kind of an embarrassing parade 
by comparison to Pilate's parade. You look at it and you think, there's not much reason for hope, and yet the people there are filled with hope. They're singing, Hosanna, Hosanna, which means, Lord, save us. Help us now. They're filled with hope. You know, on top of that, those words that come right out of Psalm 118, which was a psalm that Israel sang when they were marching up to the temple to worship that God is king. So they're singing this song that Israel sings about God being king over all, but of course there is another king on the throne in Jerusalem right now. I mean, this would be something like a prisoner of war singing the national anthem. It's a pretty audacious thing. And you could argue it's a pretty foolish thing. Because you remember how this story ends? In one week, the guy on the donkey gets killed by these same Roman officials. So what is the source then of Christian hope? Like why why are we hopeful people in hopeless times? Let Let me tell you about the first time I was a minister. Um, It was a church camp, and um, I went to church camp as a high schooler for two reasons. The first, to get close to girls. The second, to get close to God. And I was much better at getting close to God than girls. That's why I went into ministry. And um, by God's grace, he provided Lindsay to me. Praise God. And, um, but because I'm at camp and I'm striking out with the girls, I'm doing okay with God. And I'm kind of riding this spiritual high. And so because of that, when one of my buddies in my cabin starts to talk to us about feelings of abandonment by God, feeling like he's being mistreated by God, I'm paying attention. Normally, I think I would have been too immature to care much about this. But because I'm I'm connected with God in this way at camp, I feel this responsibility for my brother. Now, I don't know what to do to help him. But I remember, because I've been in church long enough, that there is this story in the Old Testament about this guy named Job who also feels like he's mistreated by God. And so I lay in my bunk and I start reading Job. And I come across this scene in Job 9 when Job says he feels like he has been accused wrongly by God in a court of law. And he says this, he says, Oh, that there was a mediator between us, between him and God. And I thought, wow, I mean, that sounds exactly like what my buddy just said, but I don't know what to do with that. So I put my bookmark in my Bible, I toss it on the bunk, and I go to play kickball because girls love a good kickballer. But right before kickball, the counselors gather us up. They want to do one of those little five-minute devotionals before kickball. And as it happens, the counselor turns to 1 Timothy 2, verse 5, and he reads this. This is what he says. There is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus. And I was like, does does anybody else see this? Like, does does, does the... Does the world know this? You know, that here is Scripture describing almost word for word exactly how my buddy feels. Describing the human condition in a way that is so accurate. But coming up empty, saying what Job needs, he doesn't have. And yet here what I find in 1 Timothy is that we, my buddy, has the exact thing Job wanted. A mediator. 
And so I think maybe this is what ministry is. Maybe what you do in ministry is you just go show people how Jesus fulfills what Scripture was wanting. And so I walk up to my friend with my Bible in the cabin, and I'm like, hey, dude. I don't know why I was doing this, but I was reading my Bible. I found this thing in Job. Kind of sounds like you. And then I found this thing in Timothy. I guess Jesus is what you need. And then I didn't know what to do, so I just kind of backed away. And I remember it was really meaningful to him. Um, and I thought, like, maybe this is what ministry is. You point to the way that Jesus is the answer to the greatest longings of God's people for all time. Right? Maybe that's, I don't, that's not all ministry is, but it's most of it. So let me take you back to this story here in Mark 11. And let me just, the way to understand this story is that nearly every piece of the story is a fulfillment of Scripture, a promise of God. Let me show you. It starts with the cult. That's from Zechariah. There's the fact that the cult has never been ridden. That's from Numbers. Seems like a minor detail. No, that's from the book of Numbers. There's the branches and the cloaks, that's from 2 Kings. There's the Mount of Olives, that's from Zechariah again. There's the fact that Jesus is coming from the east, which was the direction they were waiting on God's glory to arrive, that's from Ezekiel. There's the song they're singing, it's from Psalm 118. There's the fact, it just happens, that this guy is one of the great-grandsons of David, that's from 2 Samuel. And even the ending, even that curious bit when Jesus rides into the temple, but everybody's gone home for the day and he looks around and leaves. Well, if he hadn't done that, Malachi 3 would not be true, but he did it. You know, Jesus says in Matthew 17, and this is so fundamental to the hope that we have as believers. This is what he says. Don't begin to think that I've come to do away with the law and the prophets, scripture. I have not come to do away with them, but what? To fulfill them. Or John says about himself, or Jesus says about himself, sorry, in John 5.39, he says, examine the scriptures, examine them. Since you think that in them you have eternal life, will they testify about me? He says, what's the source of Christian hope? Think about it with me. Christian hope is not optimism. Uh, Christian hope is not that we are glass half full kind of people who think that in the end, things are going to kind of work out. Okay. Uh, Christian hope is not optimism. And, and there's more to Christian hope than just Jesus. Okay. It's, it's more specific than that. The great source of Christian hope is that Jesus fulfills the word of God. What that means is that this great story, and we talked about this a few weeks ago, this great story that God has been weaving since the beginning of time, he is still involved in, keeping his promises, and that the great author of that story will therefore bring the story to his end. That he is writing the story, that he's faithful to the story, and that we can rely on him to bring about the ending he's promised. And what's the ending he's promised? But our salvation, Hosanna, save us now. Like that chorus is the chorus that you and I in a hopeless world are, are joining in. Lord, save us. 
Lord, help us. Well, the, the confirmation, the source of Christian hope is that in in Jesus Christ, God has proven he is in charge of the story, has authority over the story, and will bring it to his conclusion. And it's not only that, right? And it gets better. It's because in this story, there are promises everywhere. That throughout this story that goes back to Genesis, stretching forward to Revelation, that it is rife, it is full with promises. And so the earliest Christians, like, zoom in on that. And this is what they say as they think about what Jesus did. They say, all, all of God's promises have their yes in him. And this is why, this is why we say amen through him to the glory of God. This is why, because all of God's promises have their yes in him. You know, if the chorus of Hosanna, Lord save us, is our question or what we need, like my buddy in the cabin, the response of God in Jesus Christ is, yes, I will. Yes, I will. Okay. Now, I want you to think about with me just for a second how significant this was for the early church. Because they're persecuted. They're maligned by the world that they're living in. And so what do they spend their time doing? They spend their time pouring through Scripture. This is before the New Testament is written. Pouring through Scripture, finding all these cases where it's like, wait, Jesus did that. Wait, wait, this is probably talking about Jesus. I mean, he did exactly that. Zechariah, 2 Samuel, Numbers, all those things. And that's what gave them hope before they even had a New Testament. Or think about when the book of Mark was written. Mark is written right when the temple in Jerusalem, which is supposed to be the place of God in our life, I mean, it, it would be something like all the churches in America and the, the capital in America all being destroyed at the same time, right? Like this, this was so radical and devastating to their mindset. And that's right when the Mark is being written. And what's the first thing that Mark says to give those hopeless people standing in the rubble hope? This happened exactly as it was written about. This happened exactly as God said it would. So you can have hope. He's in charge of this story. Lindsay and I have been thinking a lot about 9-11 over the last few weeks. I know that most of you have. And uh, there's been some great documentaries that have come out. We've been watching some of those, been reading stories. And um, the, the thing is that in our house, there are these three little boys who listen to us as we talk about these things. And they didn't live through 9-11. And so it has presented us with a challenge I know so many parents deal with. about how do I talk to my kids about this? This terrible thing. And so we were, we were looking for help with that. And I came across an article by a mom who, that was about how she was talking to her kids about 9-11. And she had, she had this line. And I thought this was, this was exactly what I want my kids to hear. This was it. They asked her the question, Mommy, could this happen again? And she said, the truth is, while no one knows what the future holds, we know who holds the future. And listen, I mean, I'll admit that borders on cliche. It borders on it. And I try to avoid cliches like the plague. That went over better in the chapel. <laughs> a little slower in here. 
But isn't that true? Isn't that true? Man, isn't that what you want your kids to hear? Isn't that it? The source of Christian hope is that Jesus is the fulfillment of this great story. That God is its author, and it will end like he has promised. That's the source of Christian hope. And you might wonder what Christian hope looks like. Let me just, because I want to give you some, something practical to take away, just really briefly in two minutes. Let me show you what Christian hope looks like in this story. Because it, it probably looks like a lot of other things, but it at least looks like this. The story starts, this story of hope, audacious hope, it starts with Jesus giving his disciples some instructions. Go get this colt, untie it. If anybody bothers you, tell them the master needs it. Now, they have no context for these instructions. And so what they say to Jesus, like my three-year-old, is why? <laughs> I don't want to do that. It's going to be so awkward. No, what do they do? Look, look, they went, they found the colt, they untied it, and they told the people just what Jesus had said. Because they're full of hope in this man, Jesus, they're obedient they're obedient. Because the thing that gives them hope, the fact that God is in charge of this story is also the thing that governs their life. God is in charge of my story. And so I'm obedient. That's one of the things hope looks, looks like. But look at the other thing. Because what's everybody doing this, in this story? What are they doing? They're worshiping. And they're singing and they're shouting at the top of their lungs. This is not like controlled civil worship. I mean, they're taking their clothes off and throwing them on the ground in worship. You thought every time Breshan took his coat off up here, it's because he was hot. No, it's because he's biblical. Right? They're, they're losing their minds in worship because they're so full of hope. And it's a defiant kind of worship. It's a worship in a world that tells them they have every reason to be hopeless, but because they're seen before their very eyes the way that this man fulfills the great story, they're worshiping. They're worshiping. Are you worshiping like that? Are you? You might ask yourself the question, are they worshiping because they have hope? Are they worshiping like that because they have hope? Or are they worshiping like that because they want hope? Probably the answer to that question is yes. This world needs more people of hope. We live in a hopeless time. And my hope is that when they look at you, that they'll see there is a reason for hope. That hope is an audacious thing, but it is not unreasonable. We have a reason. And his name is Jesus Christ. Amen. Let me pray over you and you'll be dismissed. God, I thank you for gathering your body here in this place, the body of your son, Jesus Christ. May you fill us with hope as we savor your word in scripture and savor your word that is Jesus Christ. God, we are so thankful that what we have most needed since the dawn of time, we find in this man, Jesus Christ. Would you fill us with hope at a time of hopelessness, not only for our own sakes, but for the sake of this world. And I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.